0: This is simply to make people better and to make them recognize that they don't have to get stuck where they are, but they can change. Because every, every day is an opportunity of change.
1: It's a big one today because my guest is Arnold Schwarzenegger.
0: Hasta la vista, baby.
1: This conversation, which Arnold graciously hosted in his office slash museum of spectacular artifacts collected over the course of his storied life, covers the principles he leveraged to stratospheric success in three distinct careers, bodybuilding, movie stardom, and politics, all of which are eloquently distilled in his new book, Be Useful. Arnold also shares his thoughts
0: on confidence, ego and ambition. We need to get stronger. We need to get tougher. We have to be willing to go through hardship, through suffering, through pain. We talk about his commitment to the environment, his
1: relationship with James Cameron, and also this very interesting fourth act that he now finds himself in, which is all about service, giving back, being a voice of positivity and leveraging his influence for the betterment of others. This one was quite the thrill. So please enjoy Arnold as perhaps you have never before seen or heard him. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel, but from increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to oncom slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. your life and, and your journey, this young person who, who knew early and often that he belonged in America, had a vision for it, visualized it, um, architected that vision into goals that you pursued and achieved relentlessly to the point where you you surpass anybody's expectations of your capabilities and, and, and reach the absolute pinnacle of success in three separate prominent sectors uh, of society. And this makes you on some level like this iconic generational uh, emblem or example of the American dream. So I'm interested in, in your relationship with your own ambition and how you've been able to maintain a grounded ego because you're very much a person of the people. You like staying connected with people. You're all about people. But for a different version of Arnold, that ego could have run rampant and imploded your life. So
0: it could have. Yeah. You're absolutely right. It could have. The only thing is that I think maybe would help me is is that I never really felt that I have arrived, to be honest with you. Not in bodybuilding, not in, uh, I mean, I pretend. And I do yeah. the big spiel, right? You know, I'm the greatest bodybuilder. The body, schmay? The schmay, exactly. Yes. Yeah. So I do all of that, yes. Yeah. But I mean, in reality, I feel like when I work, for instance, on in a movie, I really don't feel like I, it's any different than being a plumber. You know, I go to work, they put all the schmutz on and the makeup, and I'm sitting there like an idiot at five in the morning so that I'm ready at eight o'clock. And, and, and then you go out and you, you, you do your work, do your scenes, then you go and have your lunch. And you know, it's, it's like the same, it's like going to work yeah. and then going back home. I don't see myself as the star. I just see myself as a worker. And uh, so when people then say, you're so nice, you eat with the crew. I feel like I'm the crew. I'm just one of them, right? We are all trying to make a good movie. And so it's like I never really feel out there. Kind of like even when I was governor, no matter where, yes, I have my moments where I feel like, oh, man, that just shows how great I am and stuff like that. But the the reality settles in right away where I I put myself back into place. And uh, even when I, I remember where I have to make myself kind of feel like I'm the Mr. Olympia. But when I look in the mirror, I see so many flaws. Yeah, you say the, that in the, the, the documentary, the, you're, you're yeah, very self-critical. The, so many flaws yeah. and Jesus, your delts are never big enough. The thighs, are, oh, come on. You know, how am I going to fake my way through here? You know, so that's the, the way I talk to myself. But then when I go out, he says, oh, I'm gonna show them today. And, uh, the day and the best body in the world that has ever seen, blah, blah. I do the spiel, right? I do the shmay. But I mean, uh, the, the reality of it is I just always kind of like felt, you know, fortunate that I'm in this situation. and But I don't get like a big head because of it. Mm.
1: Yeah, I don't know if in his private moments, Muhammad Ali thought, yeah, I'm not as good as I say. Like I think he really believed that. So it's interesting to hear you say or to to you know be honest about vulnerabilities or or, or insecurities. I think that's surprising.
0: Well I think that even Mmid Mohammed Ali, I, I'm sure that he had his own moments of reality because he lost, mm. you know, and I know that when he lost, he knew why he lost. And, uh, but you know, he was like, he was a showman. Yeah. And uh, Muhammad Ali was just an extraordinary showman that had so much joy in his sport, which is extremely important to find joy in all of the torture and hard training. and, uh, And also to be able to kind of entertain people in that way and to have a mind that can remember all this stuff. I mean, his poetry and all this stuff, that he did. He never made a mistake. It's not like he bubbled away and always sudden he tripped or something like that. Uh, you know, none of that. So it was just a, a great... And he had a great vision. Uh, he always saw himself like, you know, that he was done in justice. And um, I think that motivated him to eventually get the upper hand Mm -hmm. of all of that. And I hung out with him a lot in the 70s. I traveled around the United States with him. We went to various different TV studios, did interviews there, you know, he was always the first going out there and doing his interview and all this. We always talked about it, hung out with the same people a lot of times. He invited me to different events. He just was really, really good.
1: When I think about those quiet moments where when you're questioning yourself or or you have those insecurities, you know where does that come from? I mean, you grew up in challenging circumstances um, without running water, without working toilet in your home, uh father with p t s d who was abusive and drank too much these experiences obviously were formative and 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 made you who you are and i know you have a lot of gratitude for them but what's the other side of that what is the what is the 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 pain point like when you look back on that what is your relationship with that past when you're not you know on a
0: microphone and there's cameras i you know a lot of things we don't choose i mean i don't choose how i feel i happen to be fortunate that i don't have one ounce of negative thinking about my past not one ounce and i don't know why Mm -hmm. you know it's just not there yeah i just uh, i just have You know, I remember the the tough times, but I also remember very clearly the sweet times, the gentle times that my father showed, that my mother showed. You know, how wonderful they were and how supportive they were in the schools and the sports field and uh, everything, even though they were not kind of like the American parents. It's so different. My parents have never ever watched me in a soccer game, never ever watched me in a basketball game or track and field shot with championships, javelin throwing championships, anything like this that we did in school never ever because no one did. Mm-hmm. There was no parent hanging around and saying, oh, let's watch, watch our kids like we do over here. Yeah,
1: and in this, the documentary, there's the one where they actually do show up at that one
0: bodybuilding competition and and you were confused. But, they they showed up because my friend, Freddy Gerstle, that I met very early on, invited them. And he was a very respected mm. kind of a man in town. And um, They did it for him. I, I, I think because, <laughs> because, you know, because, because he invited them and so they took it seriously. Oh, this must be something special. And then when they saw me up there on the stage, I mean, it's just like, they couldn't believe it. Mm-hmm. You know, even though, I have to say, my mother sewed for me my bathing suit because I found some bathing oh, suit wow. was just too yeah. big, and I wanted to have it cut down. So uh-huh. she was sewing with a sewing machine the day before the competition. I told her I'm going to go into a competition, and I need a small bathing suit. And so she was sewing it, and I was trying it on for her, and it was doing the fitting sweet. and all of that stuff. So it was very sweet of her. I mean, how many mothers do that? But I mean, so there's that side. But they just—it was not. Uh, the style then to go and to watch kids. The only competition that my parents ever watched was that one competition in Graz and then one competition in Essen in Germany when I won Mr. Olympia for the third time. And then right after that, my father passed away. Mm -hmm. So I was fortunate that he saw that.
1: There's this resistance or just refusal on your part to to in any way be a victim. And we're in a culture right now where where victimhood, we have a different relationship with victimhood. Um, I'm sure that drives you insane. And this book is really speaking to that on some level, like positivity as an antidote for the lack of agency that a lot of people feel or the indulgence with an identity around victimhood as as powerlessness, right? Um, and this is all about calling people to action to take responsibility for their lives and giving them tools and a roadmap that it's, it's straightforward advice in this book, right? But it's very direct. And because it's from you, it's so palpable. So I guess what I'm asking is, you know, how do you think about the way that our culture now uh, thinks about mental health uh, and and our relationship with this idea of, of powerlessness.
0: I think that in general, I think what the book is trying to do is to say to people, you need to work on yourself. If you just try to be pampered, and if you're trying to be soft, and if you're trying to be the victim and all of you're not gonna go anywhere. We need to get stronger. We need to get bossier. We need to get tougher. We need to not be afraid of failure. We gotta go into the work. We gotta face adversity. Adversity breeds character, it's strength. And fighting and resistance it doesn't only make the muscle grow, but it makes also your head grow, makes you a stronger person. We have to be willing to go through hardship, through suffering, through pain, through crying periods. All of that stuff, don't shy away from any of that because it just makes you stronger. And I think day a lot of times our youth is so into kind of, oh, let's make him feel good. Oh no, let's be more sensitive. Well, I totally agree with you to be sensitive about things, but I mean, there's also a sweet spot. Can we go too far? You know, it's like when someone says, well, today I just need to sleep in. It's that bullshit. (laughs) Yeah, You don't need to sleep in. This country was not built on sleeping in. So let's get up in the morning and let's get on that bike and let's do some exercise and don't even think about it. Don't look at your email or anything like this. Let's just get going. Boom, boom, boom. Let's get going and let's start building. And so that's the idea is just not to be overly soft and overly kind of like sensitive and everyone is in in the victim kind of a thing. I just don't buy into that. But you have to understand that every person has to be approached also differently. It's like uh, the mind is just like the body. I cannot give you exactly the same training routine that I had, because your body is different. You're a much leaner person, you need kind of to do maybe lesser uh, reps, and what this, you have to have a different diet if you want to bulk up and all this. So I have to be aware of that, that even within my family, one of my daughters had to be approached differently than my other daughter. One son had to be approached differently than the other son, So you have to be sensitive about those kind of things. But overall, it was discipline in the house. You don't turn out that light, I will unscrew those light bulbs and you will be going into a dark room at the age of three and you will be scared. So you better start learning to turn off the, those lights. You have someone else make you bed. Okay, I'm going to take the mattress and throw it down the balcony. And then you carry it upstairs and you make your own bed again. So this is the way that my kids grew up. You know, and there was like, there was crying there. Or when I burned their shoes, when she <laughs> left my daughter, left her shoes for the three times in front of the fireplace. Uh-huh. I said the third time it goes in the fire. The third time it did go in the fire right in front uh-huh. of her. And she was crying the whole night. Yeah, that, those things happen. But now... She does the same to her daughter. Uh-huh. And now she says, that was great that you did that. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So now, now my kids were crying on the ski slopes. I wanna go in, I wanna go hot chocolate, there will be no hot chocolate. You know, the usual kindergarten <laughs> cop kind of a thing. Uh-huh. You know, there will be no hot chocolate. They said, we're gonna ski four runs and then there's a hot chocolate. They said, not after the first run. Yeah, but I'm cold. I said, so am I. So what? So what? So now let's go be cold and then go skiing. I said, the more we ski the bumps and the more we ski the powder, the warmer we get and the more we warm up. I said, let's get going. And so now today, when they come up to Sun Valley with their friends, they get up after the dinner with their wine glass and they say, we want to toast Daddy because he made us good skiers, and that's why we are here today, that's why we enjoy skiing with all of you. Resilience. That's Yeah, You got to just yeah, yeah. kind of figure it out, yeah. uh, you know, how to do that and all this, but you know, it's, it, 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 it's, it's not easy. I'm not a psychologist, I'm not an expert with this, but one thing I know for sure, I can help anyone to go and be a little bit better. Right. And I think that's what we want to ask. We cannot ask everyone to be a genius, ask, ask mm-hmm. everyone to be the world's strongest man and all this stuff, but to be better. Because when you're better, when you get better, then you feel good. When we improve, we feel good. When we have accomplished something, we feel good. And that then rubs off on everything. That
1: was beautifully put. And it's sort of an example of this, this new role that you've matured into as this social media influencer. And when I think about the other three chapters of your life, they're very much a product of having this vision, adhering to it, blinding out everything as you, as you worked your way towards actualizing that vision. But this feels a little bit different it doesn't feel as much a product of a goal that you've set for yourself as much as this um, thing that occurred or is a byproduct of who you are and all of the things that you've done over the course of your life. You find yourself with this enormous platform and you think to yourself, how can I utilize this, leverage this for good, to be useful, to be of service. As governor, you're doing that as an elected representative of the citizens of California, but this presents a new opportunity to connect with people directly. So, I'm curious around your relationship to social media and this new kind of role that you've shouldered around being a voice of actionable uh, you know, positive uh, things that people can do to improve their lives.
0: I have really no goal in the in, How does that the, in feel? The arena. How does that feel? How
1: does that feel though? Well, like it's, you're it's, doing it for the for the act of doing it
0: it's just, for other people, it, as opposed to being well, it's goal really, driven. It's, it's just sometimes there's something in us that. Is so powerful that you have to communicate it. You know, I, I remember when nine, when when January sixth happened, it just stayed on me, stayed with me, the thought, and the thought, and the thought, and uh, it didn't go away. That I started writing things down, what was going through my mind. And I was writing and writing and then sitting in the jacuzzi and some other idea came into my mind. And then I wrote it down when I got out. And then I was uh, sitting there. And then, so it was, just, it was just, you know, there. that I finally you know, told my guys, I said, look, I think that we, I feel like I should speak up about that. I said, maybe it's my responsibility. Maybe not. I said, but I feel like it is. I said, because I'm a Republican. And I think it is important for people to know that my president is Biden. There were no shenanigans with the election. There was no corruption with the election. There was no one stealing and walking out with suitcases of votes and this election. None of this is true. These are lies. And. And so the more I thought about it, the more I felt like I should say something. And so we put together a speech. It was not thinking more about like being an influencer or any of those kind of things. You know, I was just saying, I want to talk to the American people that it became what it became. I had no idea that it was covered live for the whole speech on CNN. I had no idea they're going to do that. That it was covered all over the world like that, that even the world cared about January 6th, I did not know, you know, so that those things we don't know, that all of a sudden, you know, five and a half, six billion people have become aware of this speech. I said, oh my God, this is like wild. So then I realized also at the same time that there was a need for that, obviously, to say that. And so, you know, so then those things come up every so often when I, mean, I see, you know, a certain prejudice growing and um, people walking around with Nazi flags and stuff like that. And I thought, well, maybe I should, you know, say something about that because... So it, it, it also has to be tied together organically with me. Mm-hmm. And uh, so with that, I said to myself, okay... I think my dad went through that with the Nazi period. I can I can speak with authority here of where did they take him? What misery did he go through because of that? How there are no winners ever amongst the haters and there's always just losers. And also and just this, the
1: pernicious nature of bad information and, yeah, exactly. and what so, that can
0: reap. Yeah, so anyway, yeah. So, so then I was motivated about that. And then when the Ukrainian war, uh, the Russians, unprovoked attacked Ukraine, I felt like, you know, I should speak up because I love Russia. And I've been there many times and I really care for the Russian people. Mm, Gorbachev what, 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 was, is, a what has happened here? Friend, you know, right? I met Gorbachev, mm. wonderful man, and he has realized that they have gone in the wrong direction there and wanted to straighten it out, couldn't do it. Um but in any case so I've, I felt kind of like, you know, the weightlifters that I met from Russia and the people that I met when we opened up Planet Hollywood in Moscow with wonderful people and partners we had there, all of this kind of, you know, this is not Russia. I mean, this is Putin. And so let's just talk about that here. You know, so that is uh, what I was trying to accomplish. There's a bust of Lenin over here in the corner of your office. Can you tell the story of how that ended up here? Yes. Um, In the early 90s, when communism fell, I saw a piece in the New York Times where they ripped down a statue of Lenin. and, um, And it was going on all over the country in government buildings where they ripped down Stalin and Lenin and this and that and various different leaders and uh, kind of saying, okay, this past didn't work for us, look what happened and we want to, you know, kind of reorganize here. And so there was this piece in the New York Times, how they tear down the statues. So I said to myself, I would like to have one of those. This is history of them, there's a revolution kind of, and them tearing down statues. And Gorbachev saying, you know, this is the time now for change. And uh, so I got in touch with my weightlifting friends in Russia, uh-huh. in Moscow. And I said, guys, you're tearing down all the sculptures. He says, yeah, yeah, yeah we must, you know, this, this is a different, we have to go in a different direction. Yeah, I said, but I mean, uh, what are you going to do with the sculptures? Whoa! Well, we're going to go them and throw them in a dump somewhere, you know, and just uh, or melt them. I said, whoa, 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 whoa. I said, don't melt them. I said, you know, save one for me. You want one? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I, I said, I think this would be say, an unbelievable history to have a sculpture that you guys tore down for me to keep that. I, I, it's unbelievable. I think it would be fantastic. I would like to have it. Okay. Let me look into it. So a half year later is the Arnold's Classic Bodybuilding Championships in Columbus, Ohio. And the Russians come uh-huh. every year with, with the weightlifting team and the bodybuilders and so on. And the next thing I know is that we are having now to celebrate the after-party, the after-competition party, uh, after party, big celebration with thousands of people in the hall. And they roll out this table that was on wheels with a covered sculpture I didn't even know what was in it I didn't even know it was a sculpture it's covered, could have been a cake from, from somewhere. You'd somewhere. forgotten about the sculpture thing I, I didn't connect the, the dots at all at that point so the next thing I know is they pulled it, the, the guy goes up there, gives a speech and pulls this off and there's Lenin <laughs> and I was like so shocked <laughs> It's pretty unbelievable. Where, then, what
1: was the statue? Where was it?
0: It was in St. Petersburg at the Department of Agriculture, I think I was told. Hmm. Wow. And um, so anyway, so we then shipped it home to Los Angeles and there it was out by my swimming pool was now the sculpture of Lenin. And my wife says, why are we having (laughs) Lenin here? I say, I love it. I think it's funny. I think they have Lenin here. Uh, And so I had it there for a while. And then the following year, the same guy now rolls out the same table again. And now he pulls off this cover uh, and it was Stalin. So now it's a little smaller. It wasn't exactly the same size, but a little smaller. But now I have Stalin. Not in here, though. No, no. The the, the, the story goes on. The following year after that, it was Khrushchev. And then it was Andropov. And then it was uh, was, uh, Brezhnev. And then it was Uh Kosygin. And it went on and on and on like that uh, (laughs) until Putin. Uh I have a sculpture of Putin. That's part of my Russian collection. Where do you keep all of these? Every single leader that was leading the Soviet Union. Uh I have in my collection, so I had them all over the swimming pool. And every one of my uh, kind of like natural things, where the mm. fence was, there was a column. So I put them on top of the column. So th- then uh, eventually my wife went nuts. <laughs> yeah. What <laughs> is this? this people, especially with style, and it was a little bit over the. But now I have it in storage. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And but in any case, so then I decided, okay, I'm gonna bring this one in here uh, because it's really great. Uh, to To have him in the office and to remember. Him. Uh, then, then I found this great painting that is in the background of uh, Lenin. Yeah, uh, there was I think in Vienna or somewhere like that. Um, so anyway, so the, it, I thought it was That's good a great to story. Have, yeah. But in in addition, so you
1: you you talked about um, using your social media platform to talk about January 6th and and Ukraine, et cetera. But you also use it to speak to ordinary people and to empower them and talk about the things that you talk about in this book. And what's interesting about this this role that you have as as sort of a motivational, uh, you know, self-help guru for lack of a, I hate that word, but on some level, like a, a source of inspiration for people is that on on paper, you're very unrelatable. Like you've achieved things that are very difficult for the average person to understand or connect with emotionally, and yet what you're sharing and the way that you're sharing it is so authentic, it really resonates and has connected with people all over the world. Like it's really powerful what you're doing. Um, so I guess that gets to what we were talking about earlier about the fact that, that you really are some, you, you know, you, you ride your bike around this neighborhood, you go to Gold's, you're happy to talk to everyone. You could easily retreat to your home, and live a quiet private life or insulate yourself, you know, with, um, you know, the, the fancy people that, you know, and the resources that you have, et cetera. But you've made a very different choice to how to use your energy, your experience, your wisdom in a way where you're sharing it freely with people, people are responding to it. And there's something
0: really beautiful about that. You know, there's a lot of things that we can take responsibility for. And there's a lot of things we can't. I mean, I don't make that choice. It just, it makes me happy to be with people. I'm a people person. So I don't say, you know, I should go to the public gym. I think it's cooler than staying at home. And yet during COVID I stayed at home and I trained in my gym at home, but I was in pain. I was in agony. I need people. I need to be out with the people. I like to train with the people. I'm a company queen. Yeah, you know, that's what I call myself because I just love being with company. I don't like to go to football games by myself. I don't like to go for dinner by myself. I don't like to work by myself. I don't like to go to the gym and work out by myself. I just love people, doing it with people and having a good time. So that, that's just me. Yeah. So what you see is me is totally organic. Nothing is programmed or anything like that. I just, uh, I, I just, I'm really happy that I can live the life that I really want to live. You know, that I go to the gym and I want to go to the gym. I ride my bike when I want to ride it. I ride it to the beach. It's through all of the thousands and thousands of people on the boardwalk in Venice, with all the tourists there, I drive my bike through it, down to the Venice Beach where the weightlifting platform is and all that stuff. So I, I just go. I go to the regular restaurants. I eat with uh, all the people there at the, at the restaurant where I always eat every morning, and um, you know, I just, I just love that. Yeah. I hate when someone makes a reservation for me, and they go let's say, to the Palm restaurant, they walk in and they say, we have a table in the corner. Yeah. We have a table for you reserved in the corner. I say, I don't want to be in the corner. I say, I was sent in the corner when I was in school. know, you go in the corner and you kneel in the corner. As if for punishment. I said, I don't want to be punished. I feel like I'm being punished. They're going in the corner. I said, I want to sit right there in the middle where all these people sit. What's wrong with that table right over there? If you wanna sit right there, and I said, Yeah, I said, Well, there's a lot of people walking in here and so. I said, it's okay. I can handle it yeah. when someone comes over to my table and talk to them. So it's that's that it just it makes Gives me happy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
1: You are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well-being. A lot has been said and has been written about the three acts. You have these three acts of your career. You're now in this fourth act, which is super interesting and I wanna talk to you about, Um, but I have a different sort of perspective on it, particularly after reading the book and, and, and watching the Netflix series, which is to me, it feels less like three separate acts now in a fourth and more like this evolution, a gradual evolution over time of this person who went from a very kind of through through sheer force of will and discipline and hard work and all these things that you, all these principles that you, you elucidate in the book of being very self-oriented and, and sort of self, you know, <laughs> uh, it's a selfish pursuit, you know, to pursue goals at that level, right? On some level, it's, it's, it's sort of self-reflective. Your mirror was your thing to then kind of grow into this person who's really all about service, like breaking the mirror, mirror, going from like me to we. It's all one, to me, it's all one big arc. And the book is called Be Useful, but really it's a call to service. You're basically saying the best way to improve your life, to feel good about who you are and to find purpose, meaning and fulfillment is to find ways to give back. So. It's not a question, it's more just a reflection that,
0: I don't know, how does that land for you? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. But one should not forget that when you start out, you don't have much to give back. So you first have to build yourself. And it became clear to me that the more I build myself and the bigger I become, the more I can give back. Mm -hmm. So when I um, um, became, missed Olympia seven, six times. And, um, and Special Olympics called me and said, could you come and uh, train our Special Olympians? You know, kids that are intellectually challenged. They don't have the best coordination. They um, have problems doing sports a lot of times. And we like to do a study on what effect weight training would have. Well, I was called to do that because I was Mr. Olympia. I was somebody. I was the number one authority in bodybuilding. That's why I was called. Mm -hmm. And so if I wouldn't have had that, I wouldn't have been able to inspire those young kids. There was 10 kids there. And we did this study for three days and I trained them and all kinds of great things happened. They got motivated. And that's what launched then with the International Special Olympic Committee, the idea when I then eventually met my mother-in-law, uh, Eunice Kennedy Shriver, who created Special Olympics. Uh, I told her about that experience that happened before I met her and um, I told her, I said, I I trained this 10 kids and they were really into this powerlifting and they loved it, especially when I gave them the confidence that they can do it. First, there were some of them that were scared and they were screaming and they were kind of really worried about the weight over their head and all this stuff. I said, but then eventually we stripped away that fear and we could see the breakthrough and all this. I think it could be very popular. She says, why don't you do it in Baltimore? We have a meet coming up. Let's try it in Baltimore. So we did it and it was a huge success. We did it in Washington, huge success. We did it in Miami, mm-hmm. huge success. And then they adopted it in the next meeting internationally. And then it became an international phenomenon. So I all of a sudden became now not something that I was bargaining for or or, or, or shooting for, or that was not never my goal, became the international coach, the world coach for Special big strength training. Well that for me to go around now the country and the world to promote mm-hmm. Special Olympics, not just powerlifting, but of course, you know, being a celebrity, eventually every day started doing movies notice, I started traveling around to just start talking about equal opportunities. I started talking about issues about we got to get the Special Olympians also the right to have a job, the right to have healthcare, the right to have a place to stay and to live and there's equal rights, basic equal rights that they don't have. People are prejudiced. So I started talking about those issues. Not my wildest dreams did I ever think about that's what I would do in my life. Uh But I was able to do that because I was a star in movies then and, and, and in bodybuilding and so on. So I think the more I gained of, uh, you know, building myself, the more I was able to give back in a bigger way. By the time I was, uh, I I, uh, campaigned for President Bush in 1988, uh, you know, and I talked to him on Air Force Two about training and about the President's Council of Fitness and about we got to get our kids again back in the schools, back to training, exercising every day. He appointed me to be the chairman of yeah. the president's council of fitness. So now I'm going around to over 50 states promoting health and fitness in our public schools. So this is like one thing to the next happen. And that's why I mentioned in my book that everything that I've done uh, up until that point, and I heard Sergeant Shriver, my father-in-law, talk at Yale University at a commencement speech. He said to the students, Break that mirror that you always look at. Break that mirror that makes you always look at yourself and you will be able to look beyond that mirror and to see the millions of people that need your help. You heard me right, that need your help. Have you ever thought about going out and helping? And I said to myself, that's exactly what's happening to me. So... This was a long answer, but yeah. you were right when you said it was an evolution. So it starts out with me, 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 and then slowly it becomes not just me, 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 but we, we, we. Right. And so this is what happened to me. And then, as with everything, I have an addictive personality. I started getting addicted to it, to give something back. And it made me feel good. And I felt so rich. It's so good about myself that I was able to have this impact and to help kids to get you know, in schools to do to exercise, special Olympians to train and to do powerlifting and to lift 500 pounds, which they never dreamt of lifting and, and, and to, to go around and start after school programs then eventually run for governor. Yeah,
1: the seeds were there all along though because it was your dad who said, be useful
0: way back in the beginning it was my dad that said, be useful. And it was a guy that I, that I grew up with that, that later on in, when I was 15 years old, we met that helped us with bodybuilding and with weightlifting. Freddy Gerstl, that I talked about. He became then a very famous politician in Austria. And he happened to love kids. And to him, this was the greatest investment. So even in his political career, he specialized in building, you know, sports facilities for kids and everything for kids, kids, mm-hmm. kids. And he paid a lot of attention to us. He had a son also, and he invited me over to his house for for training. And he always talked about, you know, giving back. He talked about getting smart. Just remember, Arnold, don't just train your body, but train also your mind remember what Plato said in a sound mind, sound body, and always talked about that. I wanted to run around with books underneath your arms and just dumbbells and barbells and all of this stuff. And uh, so all of this influence that I had as a young kid uh, was helpful, but especially my father always saying, be useful. Mm -hmm.
1: But that gentleman, I mean, he was an incredible mentor to you Uh, and he was the guy who impressed upon you the importance of developing your mindset, of, of cultivating curiosity, of asking questions and listening, which bring, you know, that brings me back to this whole podcasting thing, right? Like for me, I've been doing this 11 years. It is an expression of everything you talk about in the latter part of the book about making the world your classroom, about seeking out and spending time with people who inspire you that you can learn from and learning the practice of not just engaging with them, but listening, learning. So this has been an incredible experience for me to continue that curiosity and that education into my life. And it's really how you approach everything that you do. Like the fact that you actively sought out so many interesting, compelling people that you could learn from and and treated the world as your classroom. And you continue to do that. I mean, we're in your office, you look around, there's pictures of you with like all these people, we were hearing stories, uh, you know, about uh, what you've learned from this person and you're this sort of Forrest Gump, character that always finds himself, you know, at the right place at the right time with the most fascinating individual and a, and a great story to boot from that. So maybe talk a little bit about how you, how you, you know, really made that a priority and a fundamental part of, of who you are.
0: I think that one of the things that you learn in sports is that if you just get stuck in your own training routine and not learn from other people, that you will never become a champion. And uh, so open-mindedness was very important to me. And so I think, like I said, in my book, I learned a lot of my lessons from sports. And to me, that kind of like, and having people like uh, Freddy Gerstle uh, that mentor that talked about open-mindedness and mm. learning from others. And uh, where you start, as you get older, you start thinking about all of those things because he become wiser. First, it doesn't mean anything. When he told me that this is what the Nazis did, Arnold, they took my brother's head and they smashed it in with a stone. They stoned him to death. And I was lucky to be able to escape and blah, 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 and all this stuff. So you hear that it didn't mean anything, you know? Uh, I said, well, that's really sad. But then it, it, it's those, those kind of stories, as you grow up yeah. and as you get older, they mean something to, to you. And all of a sudden, you find yourself fighting for inclusion and against prejudice. And you ask yourself, well, where does that come from, the desire? Of sudden, it comes from stories like that. You know, that you remember from way back when people tell you those kind of things. So to me, it was always kind of like learning new things and uh, being able to, uh, the more you become a celebrity, to be able to use that celebrity power for something positive, for something good. And so to me, it was, I, I learned, the more I opened up my mind, the better it was. There was a guy by the name of Vince Gironda. You maybe have heard of him since mm. you're a fitness fanatic yourself. That uh, it, it, he had a gym over in in the valley, Vince's gym, and I saw him doing an exercise, a triceps exercise, and I I, I looked at him. And I said, "What are you doing here? He said, oh, "This is for the outside tricep that splits the one head from the other." And the other. I said, this looks like some kind of a Mickey Mouse exercise. Jesus Christ, it doesn't look like some heavy lift of some sort. And uh, he says, well, just try it. So I said to myself, well, the way you try it, the way I tried it in those days was, I would do an exercise 40 sets of 20 reps. So I was lying there on the bench on my back, taking this dumbbell and going like this 20 times, then take it over to this side the same thing over here, same to this arm, back and forth, back and forth like this. The next day, this muscle here was just jumping all over the place. So I realized he was absolutely correct. I never, ever thought of that. There's actually a specific muscle. We always know about sculpting your body that you, you, you add more chest or more serratus muscles or some, or some obliques or some, biceps, or some more biceps, but that you can actually dissect it to a specific part of the tr- three muscles, that's why it's called triceps, the three muscles there, and one separates the bicep from the tricep and makes it appear, not that measurement-wise it's bigger, but makes it appear much larger. So I was doing that, and uh, that exercise from that point on. And it just, it was, I said to myself, if I wouldn't have listened to him, I would have never learned that exercise. But I listened to him, I first said to myself, brushed it off, I said, Mickey Mouse exercise, Then I said, no, no, no let's just try it before we kind of like come to a conclusion and sure enough. So you learn from those kind of experiences and you then apply this rule with everything. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I was always uh, rather more hungry for more information, more hungry for listening rather than talking.
1: Setting aside bias and judgment and replacing it with curiosity and basically uh, trying it yourself, right? Like being an experimenter, being open. Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. And so imagine I talk at great lengths also in the book about how the capital, Sacramento, even though it was a place that I thought the people that worked there had no quality because they ran the state into the ground by 2003 and we were bankrupt and there was a huge deficit, 30, $40 billion deficit and all of that stuff. And everything every, had blackouts and everyone was unhappy. But when I got there, I realized that there's a lot of things that I can learn because there's so many issues, policy issues that I'm not aware of. And so it actually became kind of the greatest university for me every day. I was learning. Imagine you're sitting there and all of a sudden the the nurses come in, the nurses union, and they talk about the patient-nurses ratio. I've never even heard of that. I said, what are they talking about? So they were explaining that it's right now six to one. But, you know, one nurse cannot take care of six patients, especially if you have to lift a patient because they just had surgery and you have to lift them and help them up to get to the bathroom. One nurse alone cannot do that, except if you have a powerlifting champion is a nurse or something like that. But that's not the case in every hospital. So they were explaining that and it, all of a sudden I said, oh, my God, this is like I never thought about that. That is really interesting and fascinating things. If we have the budget, uh, we should actually do something about that. The next meeting an hour later, the prison guards come in and they talk about the overtime, that they're tired because they don't have enough, you know, uh, people working in those prisons. And that the the system is meant for 100,000 prisons, but at that point we had 170,000 prisoners. So we are overcrowded, overloaded. I had no idea about that. So I learned, and then after the meeting, I got my briefings of what could, the, who, what are the options that we can do about it. And then the teachers came, and then, then law enforcement came, and so it all day long, every day, was a learning experience. So to me, the things that I learned in Sacramento was just staggering. And so I just felt like not only was I happy that I was able to serve 40 million people and be a a public servant, be the governor. But also I became aware of how complicated issues are and how complicated they can be and how much thinking it takes and how much listening that it takes to bring all of the different ideas together to come up with a good conclusion to those kind of issues and problems.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that was surprising for a lot of people. There was a sensibility that you're great in front of the camera, you know how to you know, get out in front and shake hands and smile and do all of that kind of upfront stuff to win the governorship. But governing is a different job altogether. What happens when Arnold's sitting in the chair behind the desk and actually has to do the work and get wonky with the policy stuff? How does that, you know, how's that gonna work with this action star who's an adrenaline junkie, et cetera. And the fact that you actually embrace that and we're, enthusiastic about what you were learning every single day about how things actually work and then trying to identify solutions um, was unexpected for a lot of people. And I think kind of reflecting on that, thinking about like, what is it that makes Arnold different, special? There's lots of answers to that that question. But I think one, one kind of frame that makes sense to me is this interesting combination of two different Arnolds. On the one hand, you are, and you say this in the book, like very much like Julius and twins. You have this wide-eyed, almost childlike um, sense of awe and wonder where the world is just overflowing with possibility and people are good and anything is possible. But you pair that, I think the talent is where you pair that with this doer who understands having a vision, understands setting goals, work ethic, discipline, reps, like all the practical aspects of translating the dream into reality. And most people fall, it's on a spectrum, but most people kind of fall, you know, far on one side of either of those two things. And somehow you, find a, you found a way to like marry those. And I think that's what is so
0: potent and, and unique. Well, interestingly enough, even my wife, and she knew me vo- really well, she said after I won, she says now I'm starting to get concerned. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> so you well, would come home and say, I can't believe what I learned. Yeah, but I mean, it's like I said, what are you concerned about? We won. She says, well, it says, she says, says that that seems to me is more up your alley. You found an enemy. You go after him with vengeance, like you're doing bodybuilding and then acting and all this kind of stuff. I said, and you go after them and it's like a competition. Mm -hmm. So I get that. So you were really good at that and you could shift gears and into politics and you could paint this perfect picture of California when you run it and all that stuff. So I said, but now you have to do policy. Politics is now being put aside and you have to do policy. So, I don't know how many hours you can actually sit there and listen to this most boring stuff that is really subtle stuff that you maybe, it's not your personality. And so she was questioning it. And so, as time went on, She said to me, she said, I can't believe that you actually like this stuff (laughs) because I don't even like it, she said Uh to me. I don't even like it. She says, but there you sit for hours and hours, and then you have follow-up questions. Then you meet people at night after hours still to learn more about it. She says, I I don't understand it. I said, I I somehow, you know, I, I, I just love the idea of solving those problems and trying to figure out why is it that in Austria everyone is insured And in California, the richest state in the union, not everyone is insured. What's going on here? I mean, can we not create a system that is similar to the one in Austria, but with the private sector involved and not government running the whole thing? There must be a way. So we started going on and started tackling this very complicated issue out of nowhere. No one asked me to do that just trying to figure out how do we create healthcare in California for everyone and be the first state, kind of like along with Massachusetts, that has healthcare reform and where everyone is insured. And so, so it's, it's, it's just my curiosity was just there. And I ask myself questions about education. Why is it that our education is slipping? Why are our kids not testing as well? Why is their reading ability less than it was 10 years ago? And all that. So you, you, get, you, you get interested in it because only when you understand it, and only when you hear the various different opinions, something from the way right to the way left, you need to hear all this. That's why I never looked at anyone as the enemy. When I was governor, i looked at the Democrats just as like partners as I did with the Republicans that they agree with. Sometimes they disagree with other times and stuff like that. But I always felt kind of you have to all work together Mm -hmm. because together we can figure out a sweet spot. And he says this, he says this, let's figure out a sweet spot where we can, you know, have something of both of those sides come together here. And so that's the, the, the way I try to solve the problems. And, uh, I got fascinated by all these details.
1: Your governorship was really defined by your ability to reach across the aisle and consensus build with both parties. This, this, you know, sort of um, allergy to being a, a party hack, and instead, you know, hiring a chief of staff who was a Democrat and appointing a diversity of judges and, and doing all the things that you did leads me to wonder. I mean, it's really a, it's really a question around leadership and problem solving. Because right now in 2023, feels pretty divided. People are more interested in in bickering with each other than solving problems. Reaching across the aisle is seen as a weakness. um, And as a result, problems don't get solved. So, when you look out upon the world, California, the nation, Um, What are you seeing right now in terms of the leadership that we have, the leadership that we deserve that perhaps we're lacking?
0: First of all, let me tell you that I did not experience any of that whenever I went to Washington. I mean, they all talk about it, but every president after Clinton, Clinton put $1.3 billion into the 21st century money, which is for after school programs. And after that, every president wanted to take it out of the budget. So since I was like the kind of the big deal in the after school program movement. They asked me, the, the, the National After School Program Association asked me to go and help them lobby in Washington. Mm-hmm. So we went back there to lobby the Bush administration. And everyone's talking about that hey, is gonna you're gonna, gonna bring them together. They fight over that, you know, the Republicans want to take it out and the Democrats want to keep it in and blah, blah, blah. And all this stuff. And I asked them, I said, I found friends and Californians, and I said, Can you help me? bring three senators together from the Democrats and three from the Republicans. And to talk about after-school programs, I want to just talk to them, have a meeting. And they did. And the same was in the House. They got uh, from, you know, Congress people, men and women, they got together, a whole bunch of them, Democrats and Republicans, and I met with them. I presented my case, told them how important it is to keep these after-school programs, why it was wise, showed them the statistics and the studies that, uh, where they said for every dollar we spend on an after-school program, we save three to six dollars down the line, and blah, blah, blah. They all shook hands that when the bill comes up and when the debate comes up, that they will fight and they will tell their colleagues to also fight to keep it in the budget. Mm -hmm. I walked away and I said, for a place that is supposed to be so split, and they're fighting all the time, I didn't see that fight. Not in the Senate, not in the House. We then went back in the Obama administration, he wanted to take out the money. We went back again, got again a team together, totally different people now. Again, Democrats and Republicans work together, And we kept it in. So every single time a president took it out, every time I went back there, I did not see that the Democrats and the Republicans didn't want to work together. I begged them to work together for the sake of the kids. I said, I'm a Republican. I said, but this has nothing to do with Republican or Democrat. There's Democratic kids and Republican kids. I said, yes, the Republicans say that this is like the government is babysitting and all this stuff. I understand that. I totally agree with you. But when it comes to being out on the streets and uh, being in reality, it doesn't work that way because 80% of the kids come from homes where both parents are working. So therefore, there couldn't be anyone at home. I said, so let's do, and they both wide eyes. The first time they really heard about it, someone talking passionately about it, and they voted for it and it kept it in the budget. And even still today, it's in a budget. Mm. So all is well in Washington. So no, <laughs> I'm just saying it needs an approach where you don't villainize. I didn't go in there to villainize the Democrats as a Republican. I says, we Republicans here that are sitting, we have the answer to that, but you guys are always voting no on this yeah. shit. So, no, it was not that approach. So it's, it's the approach that you have to take. And I'm talking about, and you ask about leadership, it needs the kind of leadership that has the energy to not worry so much about a specific policy, but to first bring the team together. This is what someone has to do in Washington. To those members... Rally them together. Yes, there will be different ways of thinking and all this stuff, but you got to rally them together and say, here's why, and make the case of where America needs to go and what we need to accomplish from immigration reform to healthcare reform to uh, getting rid of the debt, getting rid of the, of the, the debt deficit that we have. And to solve and to build infrastructure in order to talk about this and to have a strong military that can stand up to the Chinese and to the Russians and to the whole world. And by that that the you only can do with Democrats and Republicans together. We cannot do it alone. Republicans cannot do it alone. Then you have a total fuck up, this is some executive order like they've done. And then Biden runs off with his executive orders, which the next president wipes out again. It's bogus. The only thing that sticks is if Democrats and Republicans come together and they meet in the middle and that they answer to the people rather than to the special interests. And so you need someone that rallies them up. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm talking about. That's what it needs because I was back there with my friend Kevin McCarthy. He asked me to talk to his environmentalists. Now, of course, you will laugh because they're Republicans. You say, where are the environmentalists? Well, they are. They maybe don't buy into this climate change. So you don't talk about climate change to these guys. You talk to them about pollution, because no one can deny pollution. Every Republican I've talked to said, you love pollution. I said, no, are you kidding me? I said, you want to fight pollution? Of course, you want to get rid of pollution. I said, but then we have to get rid of oil and all of this stuff and just build more nuclear plants and more renewable energies. Yeah, I'm on board with that. So it's it's the the way you approach it. You have to find a way in,
1: you have to communicate effectively, you have to understand the needs and desires of the people that you're trying to build consensus with. In the after-school program context, it meant approaching Republicans with an economic argument that this is gonna save money and the Democrats with the idea that it's important, you know, from a democratic sensibility to have government involved in supporting these youths. In the environmental context, what you're saying is you can't go with some muddled trope that is not going to connect with those people. You have to find something that, they're, that they care about, address that, and craft your narrative and your argument around that strategically so that you can build that consensus and that team comes together to actually solve a problem. That's what you're saying.
0: And uh, Mm. there's people that's supposed to be the smart people. They don't get it. They keep asking. It goes back to sell, sell, sell. How are you telling this story? That's that's what Mm. it is. It's communicating because we in California, we accomplished all of those environmental laws because we communicated with the people the right way. When we said to the people, when it's a hard day, don't put the thermostat on at 68, put it on 74. And that they were helpful. During my administration, there was no blackout. The blackouts were in the previous administration of the blackouts. So we communicated with the people. They were on our side. And we said to them, I said, and we have to build renewable. We have now 19% renewable. By the time I'm finished, I'm going to have 50% renewable. There was no one saying no or anything like this because they, they, they realized that's where we need to go. And when the oil companies and the coal companies tried to derail us, we fought them with the help of the American Lung Association to show to the people of California what happens if we keep using oil. That the kids in the Central Valley and all over California are getting asthma at the age of three. And they're very, very sick and they're dying is that what we want to do with our kids? And they said, oh my God, I didn't know that. Instead of talking about climate change 20 years from now or something like that, it's, uh, you and I believe in it, but the majority of people don't understand what it means. Mm-hmm. So therefore, let's talk about pollution like Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan established the Air Resources Board in California that actually makes every law that we pass become a reality. So if I say... There is a law that is 50% reduction of of, of fossil fuels. They make it happen. So we said 25% in 10 years, they made it happen. So this is what Ronald Reagan Mm -hmm. established under the auspices of we got to fight pollution. He didn't talk about climate change. You know, so this is why I say that it's just that we have to sell, we have to communicate, we have to include people, we have to bring them in, we have to explain it to them. And all of that's it, and not everyone talking in a different direction. And, and uh, you know, Biden starts his speech, he says, today I want to talk to you about climate. I said, but what? Wouldn't it be much better today I want to talk to you about how we can get rid of pollution? Hit the nail on the head. Mm-hmm. You know, so this is yeah. what I'm talking about. So yeah. I think that's what when we talk about leadership, that's what we need in Washington now is just to bring people together, communicate the right way, not step on someone's toe and, and make them scream. No, just let's let's figure out things that we can do together. When I went to Sacramento, the first thing we did was we tried to figure out what we can do together. And then we worried about the more difficult stuff that, that we are in different directions and yeah. stuff like that.
1: With Amanda DeCatney. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. I want to talk a little bit about your passion uh, for for the environment. Um, I imagine that Jim Cameron has been uh, part of that journey for you. And one of the things that is it's interesting about an aspect of this, this journey that you're on with this is that you uh, have come out and advocated for people to eat less meat, uh, to have a more plant-based oriented lifestyle. You were involved with the Game Changers movie. Um, so I'm curious around, and I'm sure the the bodybuilding community had an interesting reaction to that. Um, I've been plant-based for 16 years at this point and, and friends with a lot of the people in that movie and very much a part of that movement. So I'm curious around how you got involved in, in that film and what your diet looks like now.
0: Well, I got involved because of Jim Cameron yeah. and the other people that were involved. And uh, they asked me if I wanted to talk about it because they knew that I have mentioned it to Jim Cameron in the past that I have cut back on my meat intake uh, because of uh, in the medical profession, it's very clear that you get away with this shit for so long and then eventually mm. it starts backfiring. And so they thought that I'm at an age now where I should just cut back because my cholesterol level should come down a little bit and blood pressure and all that and that's exactly what I did you know so I started cutting out so my, my diet is pretty much I would if I put the percentage on it I'm pretty good at, at that I was around 70% mm-hmm. I cut down my meat in, intake and uh, the other 30% is on it because of my um, every so often I once a month maybe I make a steak at home when we watch the UFC fights it somehow fits together with all the meat up there on the screen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> even, even though there is a lot of UFC fighters now that are also vegetable based. Uh, but in any case, so it's something it somehow fits together. And I like to do it. It's just the process also to actually barbecue. So this is why I said 30% not and 70% cut down.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but Jim had a big impact on you.
0: Jim had a big in ev- impact in many on ways, me. But Jim had a big yeah. impact on me because he not only confirmed what I told him about health-wise, how much better it is health-wise, but he confirmed that. But he also said that, and don't forget, Arnold, that twenty-five or twenty-eight percent of uh, all the pollution comes from raising livestock. And he says, if we just would cut that out, we would have much less pollution. Mm -hmm. So from an environmental point of view, it's better. And from a personal point of view, health-wise, so it's healthier for your body and it's healthier for for our earth. And so that was his message. And so Jim has never, that I'm aware of, ever said anything to me about anything that wasn't true when I was governor and I went on, as we usually go, in our motorcycle rides, and we were sitting over there at the rock store, and he said, he says, um, do you want to bring out the reverse metering? He says, pay attention to that. I found out when I went to Sacramento, yes, sure enough, that if someone puts solar on their building, Let's say for a huge warehouse and you produce so much electricity because of all this solar that you cover the whole top of the warehouse that you have spare electricity that you want to send it back to the grid so other people can use it and you get paid for it or get credit for it Mm -hmm. from the power companies that the power companies just doesn't want that. They don't like that. No, they want to produce their own, which means more fossil fuels and uh, more damage to our earth. So I then started fighting and started really working in that direction so that they do accept reverse metering. So it's things like that that no one would even know what Jim Cameron is talking about. And uh, and I immediately picked up on it, but it just shows to you also how smart he is Mm -hmm. I mean especially with technological things and technology and with with little details and he reads a lot and all that stuff just so experienced so you know he was always a great guy to talk to and I always learned from him a lot I mean the other day he came to me oh what the other day the other month he came to me and he said you know I had this stomach problem and uh The doctor says, just don't eat for a few days. And I said, okay. So he said, didn't eat for a few days. So the normal wisdom would tell us we run out of energy. He says, would you believe that I had more energy on the set? Uh He says, and as soon as I ate my first meal, he says, my energy dropped. (laughs) He says, of course, eventually we have to eat. We can't live without food. He says, but... The bottom line is that eating lunch when you're on a set does not make you become more energetic. It robs you of energy because the blood all All rushes in. Your blood goes to your digestion. You get tired. And he says, so that's why we have French hours on a set, which means you can eat throughout the day, but there was no more lunch break Mm -hmm. because he says it's a waste of two hours of uh, people's performance. And he's right. He's absolutely right. When I don't eat in the morning, I go to the gym, I work out, and I don't have breakfast and anything like this. Comes 12 o'clock or 1 o'clock when I do something, I'm I'm so energetic. But as soon as you eat at 9 o'clock after my workout and after my bike ride, I go home and I sit down and I start reading something like this. I kind of like those off, right? It's, it's amazing. So he again, he was right. So I, I just think that so many things that he has taught me and told me, Jim was always right.
1: Well, to say he's a detail-oriented person is to understate it yeah, dramatically. Sure, yeah. You know, <laughs> um, he's a somebody who who meets you in that place where. Uh, nothing is gonna get in the way of, of basically achieving your goal at the level that you aspire to achieve it, right? Right. Um, but most people are not wired that way. No. You know, You're walking the earth with a certain, like sort of default operating system that other people lack, which maybe makes it easier for you to accomplish your goals, but also perhaps might be frustrating because it's hard not to, like want people to kind of be operating on your level. And now you have this book where you're sharing, like, here's how I did it. Here's what you can learn from my experience. Here are the principles that um, kind of created the, the playing field for me to do all of these things. What is the process from your perspective of trying to get people to to grab onto these things and take responsibility because you can't, willingness, you can't engender willingness in another person, right? They either, they either like want to achieve a goal or they don't, and you can give them all the tools and say, do this, but what you can't do is actually instigate them into action, or maybe you can. No, like no, how no, do you, you think about you, that?
0: No, no, you can. I know what you're saying, but it is interesting how sometimes people listen to you in an interview or they talk to you in person, and there's something you say, maybe not even intentional, where they where they say, "That's what did it. Hmm. That's what triggered something in me that I want to go now and set a goal for myself and do X, Y, and Z. So it, it it can be the oddest thing. I myself get motivated a lot of times when I watch something by coincidence, or watch a documentary, or I hear something. Um, it triggers something and then it motivates you to go in a certain direction. So I think to disregard that, would be a mistake. I think that we have to do everything that we can. And since I, by accident, fell into this thing here, becoming a motivational speaker, because yeah. 10 years so ago... So it is an accident. They, they, totally an accident. Yeah. When 10 years ago, when I was doing... Or or, or more than that, uh, 15 years ago, when I was doing a commencement speech at USC and I talked about here my, just to to motivate the kids when they graduate, uh, here's my six inner points, my six rules to success. From that point on, people kept asking me. Why don't you do a book? Why don't you do a book? Why don't you do a book? And I just said, that's not the business I'm in. But then all of a sudden, people that uh, I got in the speaker, speaker circuit, yeah. you know, that presidents usually are on, um, or ex-presidents, I should say. And, um, and all of a sudden, I'm traveling around and I'm doing speeches with Clinton, some in Africa and there and there, and uh, uh, with various different leaders. And everyone is asking me to do a motivational speech, not to talk about policy, not about the environment, not about my governorship or anything, or about bodybuilding. No. A motivational speech. They want to have the six rules, or the seven rules, or the ten rules. Whatever it takes, they want to know that. And they they all say, look, we're we're having 5,000 people from real estate there. Pump them up. we got to get get more sales and blah, blah, blah. And so that's all of a sudden I fell into this groove of 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 kind of where people say, you know, this is so motivational what you're saying. This is so great. This is exactly what we needed. Do a book, and then they finally I did the book. Hmm.
1: What is your relationship with it like in terms of of how it makes you feel like compared to being the biggest movie star in the world, compared to being governor, compared to uh, you know winning all those titles as a bodybuilder. Um, you spoke earlier about how you can become addicted to that um, feeling that you get when you're helping somebody else, right? And this is, this is a very palpable, powerful way of you reaching out to people directly and having that impact on them. Does it feel different than what it felt like when you were governor or when you were you know, doing the big movies? Is it the same, like the gratification that you get
0: from... Um from at all I think it all feels good yeah you know but I mean it's also we change I'm a different person sitting here today than I was when I was 20 years old and I won my first Mr Universe contest can imagine so to me that was the most important thing in my life this was like unbelievable but then came a, a day where I stood on that stage and I won Mr. Olympia, even a bigger title than Mr. Universe, I didn't mean anything. I said to myself, these guys that I just beat, mm-hmm. they would be much happier with that title than I am. So I'm out of here. And that was it. I quit. And I went into acting. So... Then all of a sudden that becomes the most important thing, to go and to ring up big box office and to have a successful movie to go from action to comedy and from comedy to action and this and that and to do all those kind of things, that becomes the most important thing. But then in 2003, when I finished my promotion tour for pump for, for Terminator 3, and they had the recall election here, I said to myself, this is what I should do. I should run for governor. What the hell is it? this? Is, this isn't the same thing. Am I gonna go now for the Terminator you know, 4 and 16 and 20 and t- Conan 14 or something? Yeah. Is that what life is about? There must be more than that. So all of a sudden you start looking for the, in a, what I call the BPD, right? The bigger and bigger, better deal. Uh-huh. And to say, I start looking for something more spicy, that's more risky and that it is bigger for me. And to me, as a politics, yeah, that's, that's something that is a new challenge that could be really great. And I stepped into that arena. So it's, we change and we change. And so what was one time to me, the most important thing and the most exciting thing, you know, today is not. And so this is now exciting to be able to motivate people to be better and, um, uh, to go and to fight for the environment and to uh, you know promote uh, democracy, and uh, to f- terminate gerrymandering and all this kind of issues in the, to to run the Schwarzenegger Institute, and to make students you know kind of. Learn firsthand of what it's about to become a leader and all that stuff at the university. So those are the kind of things day that mean mm-hmm. something to me. So it, it, it's an evolution. Uh, as I get older and as I get wiser and as I get better and smarter and all of that stuff, things change. Mm-hmm.
1: I want to be conscious of your time. I got to let you go, but perhaps- Thank God. The, uh, yeah, I'm going to get you out of here. No. Are you bored?
0: <laughs> no, no.
1: I, I wanna give you a little like last, last opportunity for a little schme. you know, like, what is it that you want people to get out of this book? What do you think is holding people back the most? How are you messaging these people, lighting a fire under their ass, trying to get them pumped up and on a new, better trajectory?
0: You know, this is simply to make people better and to make them recognize that they don't have to get stuck where they are, but they can change. Because every, every day is an opportunity of change. And so I want them to look at this book and to just say, maybe there's something in that will motivate me to change. And to get better, to improve myself, I don't have to get stuck in this. I can shoot for big goals. I want people to be aware of it, that you don't have to shoot for little goals, but you can shoot for big goals, that it is just as difficult to shoot for a little goal than to shoot for a big goal. And I want them to know that they shouldn't be afraid of failure, that this comes naturally in life. There will be failure and there will be successes. The important thing is that we learn from that, but not to be frozen and to be to fear that. Uh, they, I want them to know that. That they have to create a vision of where they want to go without a vision there's just uh, nowhere to go you use you, it's, it's just the way it is in life you would just wander around without a mission without the joy of chasing something how much fun it is to chase something so i want them to learn those basic lessons that makes you just more successful and better hmm. you're speaking my language
1: thank you for that uh that was beautifully put you're an international treasure. It uh, meant a lot to me for you to spend time today. So I thank
0: you for that. Thank you. Appreciate it. Keep uh, up all your yeah. athletic activities. <laughs> I'm trying to. Yeah, Jesus, I <laughs> yeah. mean, it's like amazing. I love the guy <laughs> no. that can at any given time Walk from my office over to the beach and swim to Hawaii. No. I I wish. How many people can can do that? I wish, man. That's that's unbelievable. Anyway, Um, you did a great job. Yeah, thanks. Keep up the good work, okay? Appreciate it. Be
1: useful, available everywhere. It's going to be impossible to avoid you, I think, probably in coming weeks. Uh, So it's going to be the book is going to be everywhere. It's going to be a big success. I loved it and uh, appreciate you. Thank you. Cheers. It was fun writing it. Nice. Thank you. My books, Finding Ultra, Voicing Change in the Plant Power Way, as well as the Plant Power Meal Planner at meals.richroll.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, the easiest and most impactful thing you can do is to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify Today's show was produced and engineered by Jason Camiolo, with additional audio engineering by Cale Curtis. The video edition of the podcast was created by Blake Curtis, with assistance by our creative director, Dan Drake. Portraits by Davey Greenberg, graphic and social media assets courtesy of Daniel Solis. Thank you, Georgia Whaley, for copywriting and website management. And of course, our theme music was created by Tyler Pyatt, Trapper Pyatt, and Harry Mathis. Appreciate the love, love the support. See you back here soon. Peace, plants. Namaste.